So I'm in New York a couple of years ago <clears throat> for a church planning um, event. We've got churches all over Brooklyn and Queens and, and the Bronx and, and some really rough places. And <clears throat> while I was there in the hotel, they were having a, they were having a, a, a chess tournament. And these guys are everywhere, every little room in the hotel. They've got, they've got boards set up and there's people playing. They're, they're, they're out in the lobby playing and they're all, they're all talking trash. You ever heard chess guys talking trash? I am the greatest chess player in New Hampshire. I am the number one chess player in Massachusetts. I'm going to tell you what, that kind of stuff drives me crazy. Because if there's one thing that I can't stand, it's chestnuts boasting in an open foyer. <laughs> thank you. Last night, last night, they just weren't, they weren't with me last night. So thank you. <clears throat> All right. All right, good choice on your part. Okay, we're, uh, we're doing this Christmas series and we're talking about prophecies. And last week we looked at Genesis 3.15 and we talked about the fact that from the very beginning on Adam's worst day, uh, God was at his best. And it talked about that the seed of the woman, he, the seed, he, would crush Satan's Head. And we talked about how that 4,000 years before Jesus came and 6,000 years ago, right after Adam and Eve's fall, right after that is when God promised that there would be a Savior and it would be a virgin birth. <clears throat> well, Isaiah picks up on that theme in chapter 7, verse 14, when Isaiah says these words right here. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give a birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And he will save his people from their sins. Now, if you were Jewish, all right, this is nothing new because the breadcrumbs have been left everywhere. All the way back to Adam, okay? Adam knew that a Messiah was coming. Job which is the oldest book in the Bible, if you didn't know that. Job actually goes back to about Genesis 14, if you were to put it uh, into its historical context. And when things are at their very worst, in Job 19, verse 25 and 26, Job says, as bad as things are, this is what I know, my God will stand on this earth and he will be the God of the living. So Job was talking about a living Messiah. He was talking about God in flesh being on the earth. And then the other prophecies are scattered. History says, or basically what we know from scripture, that there are 1,817 prophecies that have been fulfilled. Now there's more. There's more in the scripture. But 1,817 prophecies have already been fulfilled. Now wouldn't that get your attention? Wouldn't that bring some credibility to you? All right, now we, we're going to get to the fact that a guy said he was going to die and raise from the dead, and he did it. You'd think that would be enough. But G, God is leaving breadcrumbs all through the Old Testament, and you're like, well, how do we know any of this is true? Well, it's written by about 40 different men over a period of 1,400 years on three different continents, and they all tell the same story. 
We're at Micah 5 2, he'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be called a Nazarene. Isaiah 52 and 53 talk about the crucifixion. Psalm 22 talks about how he'll be despised. Zechariah 9 9 talks about when the Messiah comes back, he'll ride a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Okay. The, the chances, mathematical chances of any one person fulfilling three of those is astronomically impossible. 1,800 of them. 1,800 of them. All fulfilled. Now see, there are some people just say, yeah, I don't buy any of that. That's fine. Some people are too lazy to do the work. But this is not a blind step of faith. And listen, I grew up in that church, good country church. They just said, look, I don't need any facts. I just trust God by faith. Okay, that's good. I'm glad you can do that. But the Bible is there as history, archaeology. It's all unfolded there in front of you. And all of these prophecies, and here's the deal. It's really hard to fake the first two. The virgin birth and the fact that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. See, Bethlehem's not as big as this room. So it's not like there are Millions of people coming out of Bethlehem. You're like, maybe it's him, maybe it's him, maybe it's him. No, there, there weren't. All right, it's a small little village. So the chances, you know, of you, you know, how much did you have to say about what town you were born in? Yeah, none, none. And Jesus' family, Joseph and Mary, don't even live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth. But it's because of the census, they have to go pay taxes, and that's why they end up back in their hometown, and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Awful hard to fake that. Now, I love what Lee Strobel says, all right? Lee Strobel, let me just set this up. Lee Strobel uh, was an atheist back in the 80s. If you don't know his story, you should really go look it up. Um, Lee, Lee was a, a reporter, investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune and uh, living a pretty wild life. And his wife became a Christian and it drove Lee crazy because she started coming home and saying, Lee, you need Jesus. And he's like, this is all baloney. Everybody knows it's baloney. He said, I'm an investigator. I'm going to Prove it false once and for all. So he goes on a several-year campaign, goes back to all the original sources. Lee Strobel ends up becoming a Christian. For the last 40 years, he's pastored some of the largest churches in America and written some of the most amazing books uh, anywhere out there. And this is a quote that he says about prophecy. He says, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, prophets foretold the coming of the Messiah. In effect... Dozens of these Old Testament prophecies created a fingerprint that only the true Messiah could fit. This gave Israel a way to rule out imposters and to validate the credentials of the authentic Messiah. Against astronomical odds, Jesus and only Jesus throughout history matched this prophetic fingerprint. This confirms Jesus' identity to an incredible degree of certainty. What a powerful statement. So the power of prophecies are so uh, engaging for us today because we can go back and look and say, wait a minute, what are the odds of Moses 
writing this down for 6,000 years ago. And then we have a prophecy from Isaiah 2,700 years ago. Micah 2,500 years ago. And again, they lived in different places. They spoke different languages. And yet, all of it comes together in Jesus. Galatians 4.4 says this. All right, this is a great verse. In the fullness of time, when God brought all the pieces together, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem, to buy back those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. So that we're not, we're not any longer just people out there trying to be good, because we talked about last week, we can't be good, but that now we are now grafted back into the family as sons because of what this Messiah is going to do. And what is the big sign? The big sign is that the virgin will be with child. Now, you can argue which is bigger, the virgin being with child or the resurrection. But if you're on the, the Old Testament side, the virgin being with child. All right, there's your sign that we're kicking things off. You and I look back, that's great. But you and I look back and say, yeah, what well, a guy walking out of the grave is a pretty good story too. Maybe that's why we celebrate both. Maybe that's why that's the two focal points. And you'll see around this time of the year, you always see this. These guys come out. Oh, there were a lot of virgin births. There's, there's virgin births in Egyptian history. And okay, I'll even give you that. All right. The stories were there. I don't believe those stories, but Satan's a good liar. But I'll even give them all to you. Did your virgin birth resurrect from the dead? That's still what it comes down to. Now, Numbers, Numbers 23, verse 19, this is again, this is Moses. Moses said, his, here's God's assessment of us. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does God speak and then not act? Does God promise and not fulfill? Now, Moses wrote that 1,400 years before Jesus. But he knew that God was faithful to his word. And he's saying, guys, hold on to that. God will fulfill. If he's fulfilled the 1800 so far, what do you think the chances are he's going to fulfill the last few about the second coming of Jesus and getting us out of here? Does that make sense to everybody? All right. So this is what we're talking about is the power of prophecy. This just didn't pop up. They're picking up breadcrumbs. They're pricking up breadcrumbs from the time of Adam all the way to that moment when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And that's why once the story gets told, when Peter starts telling the story and the other disciples start telling the story, it's why so many thousands of Jewish people immediately believe. Now, there's the hard-hearted guys that were going to lose their power and position and money. They're slow to the draw. But the average Jewish person, what happens on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 men? Thousands and thousands of women and children. Because they'd been picking up crumbs all those years. And they knew about the prophecy. So Peter gets up and says, he starts quoting these prophecies just like, just like I did. And the people are like, oh my goodness, this really is him.
Now, in the New Testament, the word, the word power is the word dunamis. It means dynamite. It's used in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. It says that the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is the dynamite that brings salvation to all people. That resurrection... That story of Jesus is what brings the power. So we have the power of the prophecy, and then we have the power of the miracle. All right? Don't miss this. This is why the Bible has got all these miracles. And everybody gets upset. Why can't I see miracles today? Well, I think you probably do. We're too stubborn to recognize that God's doing all kinds of great things all around us. But I will admit that, no, I haven't seen, you know, I haven't seen the... Uh, the Atlantic part, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen some of the miracles that happened, but those miracles were always to prove a point. And there are a lot of people that still run around and say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, I will point out to you that pretty much the entire Bible is pointing to Jesus being God, but John does the best job. Let me run through these real quickly. These are the seven first miracles of Jesus, okay? John 2, changing water into wine. John 4, healing the royal official's son. Healing the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda. You've got the feeding of the 5,000 and then the 4,000 is later. You've got Jesus walking on water, defying physics. You've got the healing of the blind man who was blind from birth. And then you've got the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, let me ask you this. What more could Jesus do to prove that he was God? What more could anybody do to prove that he was God? The power of the miracle is so incredible. Now, in 1980, I was a, a sophomore in high school. Transistor radios. Anybody that old? We had eight tracks too, by golly. But anyway, uh, transistor radio, the miracle on ice, the night that our Olympic hockey team beat the powerful Soviet professional team, no chance to win that game. They win, miracle on ice, people still talk about it. It's one of the great moments in history, one of the great moments in American history. Now what's amazing is people will believe a miracle like that. And yet they have a hard time believing that an all-knowing, all-perfect, all-powerful God can pull off miracles. You know, in John 11, let's go back to Lazarus, because that one's just fun. Um, where Lazarus lived is, is, let's say, you're looking at me, and I'm, I'm, I'm the Mount of Olives, okay? So I'm looking right at the temple. Uh, Lazarus' family lives right on the backside of this mountain, okay? So it, it's about a mile walk. For all the elite to get to Lazarus's house, it's about a mile, and so, so Lazarus is dead, and Jesus doesn't show up for four days. Does anybody know why? In Jewish law, they would wait three days because maybe you're just in a coma, um, maybe there's something we missed, maybe you're going to come back, so they would wait. That's why Jesus waited three days. But in this case, Jesus gave him a bonus day. Four days. Because he wanted everybody to make absolutely sure that what? Lazarus was dead. No doubt about it. 
He goes, he talks to Mary and Martha, Lazarus, brother and sister, and they're crying. They're all mad at Jesus because he didn't come and stop him from dying. You could have fixed this. And um, Jesus said, all right, watch this. And he's going to call Lazarus out of the grave. And Mary and Martha have a legitimate concern. He stinks. Four days. Again, that's the point. Dead. He's dead. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Here's the verses. He says, he calls him by name. Says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, I've been in Lazarus's tomb. You can still go there. You have to go down about two flights of stairs. And then you crawl into a little hole. So when Lazarus would have come out of that grave, you'd have heard him. You would have heard him coming up the stairs. I don't want to play the mummy movie. But that's what he would have looked like. And I assume that maybe Jesus and Lazarus are talking as he's coming up out of that grave. And then when Lazarus comes up, it said, take the grave clothes off of him and let him go. Now what's fascinating is the verse behind that. It said from that point on, the religious leader said, we got two problems now. We got to kill Lazarus and we got to kill Jesus. Wow. Wouldn't you, what happened to the Wow. I mean, wouldn't somebody go, whoa, whoa, he was dead. He's back. I mean, wouldn't you be in all that? Well, you would be unless it somehow was going to mess up your power and position and money and greed. And all of a sudden, they've got to figure out how to eliminate both of them. But there is no doubt in everybody's mind in that crowd that Jesus is the miracle worker. Everybody knows that. And in those miracles, there is power. But then we get to the best part. And that's the power of salvation. That's where you and I get involved. If you don't, if you've not accepted Jesus, you, before you go home, I pray that you do. You come up front, we'll have people up here uh, that will help you, people over here that will pray with you. Uh, they will help lead you to Jesus to accept the Messiah. Pick up those breadcrumbs. If you're online, you hit the button. I've decided. I believe you're going to see a baptism tonight or uh, this morning before you go home. We had another one um, last night. Uh, we had a young man give his life to Jesus. Guys, this never gets old. But the power of salvation is what gives us freedom. That's the whole point. You know, this last week, Several people who I wish I knew personally signed $300 million baseball contracts. Aaron Judge, $360 million. Now, in fairness, he's got to work half a year for nine years. I mean, travel first class, eat only the best food. I mean, it's going to be a rough life for him. Wouldn't you agree? Let me ask you this. If you had $360 million, would you think you were pretty much set for life? Anybody. Would you think you were set for life? I mean, is there anybody here expecting to make more than that in your lifetime? Just, no, no. You got to admit, if you're on this earth, you're, per, you're set to go. However, what are you going to do after that? See, I can give you a deal better than that. I can't give you a $360 million, no trade, no cut contract, guaranteed money. You fall down, break your leg the first day, they still got to pay you the whole thing. I can't give you that. I can give you something better though. 
I can give you salvation for all of eternity. And you can have it today. You can know it for sure. You can have confidence in Jesus Christ. And you know what the best part of heaven is? This is I figured this out a long time ago. It's the one place I'll be where I can't screw something up. Doesn't that make you feel good? The power of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves; It is the free gift of God. But this idea that faith is blind, don't, don't believe that for a minute. People say, oh, faith is just a step in the dark. No, evolution is a step in the dark. You want to talk about faith in the dark. That's a step in the dark. My faith is built on all kinds of prophecies from thousands of years ago, all kinds of history, all kinds of archaeology. It's all piled up there for me. And then there's one more piece that I want to tell you about. This guy's name is Polycarp. That's his name. If you don't know who Polycarp is, I'll explain. When Jesus was at the cross... There was only one disciple that stayed with him. Does anybody remember? It was John. And John was probably the youngest. Remember, Jesus, he, we have this idea that Jesus picked old people. Why would he pick an old goat like me? Um, because he wants to expand the kingdom. So he picked a bunch of teenagers. And first of all, they're more moldable and they're going to live longer. So that, that makes sense. And so John's at the cross. And when... Uh, Jesus looks down at the cross. The other disciples have all left. And what does he say to John? Anybody remember? This is your mother. He's talking about his, his own mother. Jesus was talking about Mary. For the rest of John's life, Mary will live with John. Mary dies in Ephesus in, in Turkey uh, with John. Uh, John takes care of her for the rest of his life. It's an incredible, incredible story. But John's ministry goes on. And John had all these disciples too. And one of John's disciples was a guy named Polycarp. Now, we can pretty much trace, it's besides the history and the archaeology and the prophecies, we can trace it through people. And so you start running, well, this guy was the, was the disciple of this guy who was the disciple of this guy. And you can follow history right out. So Polycarp has got the gospel firsthand from whom? From John, who was at the cross. So Polycarp's out preaching the gospel everywhere. The Romans finally catch up with him. And they're getting ready to kill him. I think they were going to burn him at the stake if I remember right. And they said, listen Polycarp, all you got to do is deny Jesus and worship our Roman gods and you can walk out of here. And Polycarp said, for 90 years, Jesus has been faithful to me. You think I'm going to deny him now? No chance. There's the physical lineage that leads us back to faith. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you have a lot of questions about how to be saved. Maybe you are saved and you're so stubborn you refuse to accept the fact that Jesus really does love you. And he really did leave all these breadcrumbs so you could walk into the presence of God himself. So Father, as we finish today, help us to fulfill that lineage to the next generation. Some need to be saved today. Some need to accept you. 
Some need to know they are saved, and the result of that, go invite other people and go and share their story about how God took their broken pieces and put them back together. Some watching online that had a hard time this morning because of what they did last night. God let them know that all the scripture is taking man's bad days and adding Jesus' best days and changing all history. Amen.